Another week, another episode of the OHL podcast. And I don't know about Dan Mahar, but I learned something this weekend. I'm Mike Farwell on Twitter at Farwell underscore OHL. Dan is at his name, at Dan Mahar. You probably knew this, Dansky, because you're far more intelligent and informed than I am. But I learned for the first time this weekend that you, as a referee in the Ontario Hockey League, can call a penalty, then review it on the iPad, and take the penalty away completely. I did not know that was a thing until this weekend. Yeah, well, uh, I appreciate you saying that, even though it's not true. But, but uh, I did not know that either, to be honest with you. I When I saw that call being made, I thought that they only had the ability to review a major, whether or not it stayed a major or became a minor or that's it. I didn't realize it could be totally rescinded. And I, I'm fine with that. I'm my, my whole mantra is get it right. And if it takes them looking at the iPad to get it completely right, I'm fine with that. But I did not know. Okay, so on that point, and we've got lots more to discuss on this week's episode of the OHL podcast, including getting into the email inbox for the first time in a while. I'm overdue on this. Thank you for your emails. Keep them coming. We'll get to that later. But I want to, first of all, give full credit to Ben Wilson and Pat Myers. It was a veteran crew for the London Kitchener game on Sunday. And when I saw their names on the lineup, I thought, okay, considering it's a Midwest division game, second time they'd meet, they'd met in the week, you know, know what's going to happen i thought it was a good move to have the veterans there and they nailed it on this particular case what happened was jackson edward the london defenseman really he listen he caught adrian misseljevic of the rangers with his head down it's as simple as that laid a big lick on him at speed at game speed it looked clean to me i got one glance at a replay that still looked pretty clean but edward was assessed a five minute major for head checking went to the box next thing you know after the review He's coming out of the box and skating back to the bench. And I thought, what on earth? But as you just said, I was with you. I thought you could reduce it to a two, but I didn't know you could rescind the penalty entirely. So again, Pat Myers, Ben Wilson, terrific job. You clearly know the rules really well. I will only add this. It makes me a tiny bit uncomfortable that the referee's arm goes in the air. So he saw something that was penalty worthy but then when he looked at it on review, suddenly it wasn't. So it makes me think that maybe we're calling a little bit on result as opposed to on the play itself. That player really got rocked. Now he's down on the ice. Ooh, he's slow getting up. We're going to, you know, throw this guy in the penalty box. There must have been a penalty there. Although, as it turns out, maybe they're just erring on the side of caution. And as you said, they got it right. And if getting it right is our top priority, which it should be, then... I'm perfectly okay with what transpired. Yeah, and Mike, maybe just to lend a little more to the uh, theory that these two veteran referees got it right and knew what they were doing. I've heard the theory amongst the referee community too that sometimes it's best to put your arm up there because you can review it. If you don't call it, there's never a review. There's it. It has to happen at league office after afterwards. But by doing it at game speed, where you're not sure, you're not sure. Put the hand up, knowing you can go to the iPad gives you a little bit more leeway to get it right than if you just decide, I'm not sure what that was. I'm not going to call it. So, so instead of, you know, damning them for saying, you know, did you see something that wasn't there? It, it could more be that. So good job, fellas. We like to criticize officials in all sports, but credit is due where it's due. And Pat Myers and Ben Wilson did a terrific job in that Sunday afternoon OHL game in London. Okay. Something else that, that came up and it came up twice this weekend, Dan, at least where I was in the O and I think this is a conversation we could probably have any day of the week and any week of the month and any month of the year. 
But since it came up twice, I thought we'd bring it to the podcast this week. And it's around the modern athlete, how we motivate that athlete. And if, frankly, the athletes of today are coddled in any way. So it first started on Friday night uh, at the Kitchener Memorial Auditorium before the game. I'm talking to some other media colleagues and we were reflecting back on the Tuesday night game that the London Knights beat the Kitchener Rangers seven to three. And the question was asked of me, how does London do it? How do they continue to get maximum value, let's say, out of the team they put on the ice? Because if you think about earlier in the season, at the beginning of the season, predictions are worth the air that they're spoken into. Let's be clear about that. But not many expected London to be competing for the top spot in the Western Conference or even leading the Midwest Division, frankly. And all of a sudden, they're doing both of those things. They're adding at the trade deadline. And, you know, how do they do it when, for example, it doesn't work out for Guelph, doesn't work out for Owen Sound, take your pick, looking at the Midwest Division. And and so I said, I, I think what might happen here is it's a situation where when you come to London, it is made clear to you that this is how it works. And they've got a track record of success to lean on to say we're pretty much a pipeline to professional hockey. And we have very successful teams in the Ontario Hockey League. So you're going to get some playoff exposure and things like that. So we are looking for the 30 or so kids that will come here and essentially play by our rules. And I'm guessing, I don't know anything about it. Dale Hunter, if you're listening, you're still my white whale on this podcast. I want you for one of our Friday feature interviews. But it suggests to me that that's the way it works. Here's how it works in London. If you're not going to do it that way, Life is going to be pretty difficult. And I'm led to believe that during that three-game losing streak for London, it was not the most fun team or arena to be around. And then they started to turn it around. They beat the Rangers. They beat Owen Sound handily. So that, that was one piece of it. And then another random conversation in the media room on Saturday in Sarnia about a player that's draft eligible that just doesn't always show it to you. And And among the people I was talking to, one of them said, you know, he noticed that this player has an abundance of talent, but sometimes just leaves a lot to be desired in other areas of the game, like a back check, for example. But when he sees that, when the scout sees that, the next power play comes along and that player's back on power play one. So what's going on there and how do you make a player accountable if you're not removing ice time? So it, that's a long way of introducing this whole idea of how are we even motivating players today or how can we, given the fact, and then we had a big conversation and I'm sure you'll chuckle about it, Dan. Oh, you know, back in the day, you know, there was a great story about a player who was consistently late and finally the team said to him, we're done with this. You will no longer be late. You are going to go in and apologize to your teammates or you're not playing. And the player refused to apologize to his teammates. And guess what? He didn't play. It took him two games of sitting in the stands watching to finally come around. Like, you're serious about this? You want me to apologize? You're damn right we want you to apologize. Kid did. There was the level of accountability. I don't think you get away with doing that anymore. I really don't. As simple as that sounds. Anyway, enough from me. Thoughts? Well, yeah, probably 100 thoughts on this one, Mike. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, 
you wonder, you talk about London, you wonder, is it chicken or egg? Is it, is it the instill the accountability and get the results? Or is the accountability coming from that track record you talk about? It's pretty hard to walk into the London Knights organization and, and feel like you're going to change things and not put up with something the coach is telling you because of the track record they have. It's, it's, London has built that street cred and therefore has the luxury now of being a destination people want to play in so that they have that piece to to gain accountability but I look back at the whole when you talk about players being coddled and what we can do today versus what maybe we could do back in the day you know the, the stories of you know Bert Templeton stopping the bus a mile out of town and making the players walk back at two in the morning and bag skates at three in the morning and these kind of things yeah, obviously you can't do those things, but I'm a huge believer that accountability is a key piece of making these organizations successful. And there's there's all kinds of, of ways you can achieve that without without those abuses of the past. But I think you you really risk slipping into sort of that country club motif if you if you don't have those things in place. And I think one of the I mean, one of the most obvious ways to do it is it, through your drafting and scouting. Uh, you're looking for those character players, those guys that are self-motivated, those guys that aren't going to cheat, those guys that aren't going to, you know, take lazy back checks and and coast to the bench and those kind of things. But I I think upfront communication is huge. Um, I think you look at the you know famous story of uh, Derek Roy and George Halkidis being benched in a game in their in their Memorial Cup year because they missed curfew by a few minutes, and that's that's a an organization wide accountability. That I think is important. It's not just doesn't just uh, go for your fourth liners and your your extra players. It's for everyone and in uh, accountability to each other as well. So I think there's an element there that you instill. This is what we want in an organization, and the players are responsible partly for that as well. So if if someone's dogging it or not doing their part, that there's there's just a cultural thing that sets in. So it 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 becomes uh, a bit of a, a debate, Mike. But I think at the end of the day accountability is absolutely critical and you got to have it in your organization if you're going to go anywhere. And that's just those little things. And there's ways to address it without, I think, delving into the abuses. Okay. Uh, first of all, I, I have it on pretty good authority. It was a little bit more than just missing curfew by a few minutes for Roy and Halkitas, but we'll just leave that there. Yeah. On the point about Burt Templeton, it reminds me of a story of Eddie Bush, a former Kitchener Rangers coach who one time on the way back from a bad loss Stopped the bus at the Charcoal Steakhouse. If you know Kitchener, it's probably not uh, maybe two miles from the rink, I would guesstimate, and made the players get off the bus there, grab their gear, and walk back to the rink. You mentioned bag skates, and I'm I'm going to play the villain here, but I want to know because you use the word abuses, and I get it. We we need we needed a little bit of a, a market or course correction here, but what's wrong with a bag skate? What's wrong with stopping the bus saying, get off. I don't care if it's the middle of January and it's snowing, grab your bag, sling it over your shoulder and walk your sorry ass back to the rink because you just embarrassed the organization with that loss. Why is that so bad today? Well, I, I would say there's probably a little bit of a gulf between the two things you just described. I think, I think a bag skate is well within the confines of, of your team and, you know, teaching that work ethic and that account that, you know, you might, you might have to exert a little energy later if you didn't do enough on the ice and that that piece. But uh, you know, dropping teenagers off in the middle of the night to walk walks through the streets with is maybe a little different. So I I I think that there's a healthy dose of common sense applies here too. And I think 
the part that always bugs me on this topic, Mike, is there's this this whole realm of, you know, in the in a day of mental health and and we want to make sure that these players are being treated properly. And some of these abuses that we heard of in the past are not driving them to to bad outcomes and and that kind of thing. And that's absolutely valid. The flip side is, would you want your child playing for an organization that has no accountability and they're not making them back check and they're not helping them with the things they're going to need to get to that next level? So I don't think you're doing the players any service by coddling them and saying, yeah, no, there's not going to be bag skates here. We're, we're, we're above that. And so I, I think the trick is finding that sweet spot of accountability that you, you have. And it, a lot of it comes from upfront communication saying, look, if these things don't happen, this is what the consequence will be. And these are things that can be shared with parents and agents. They don't have to be behind closed doors at 3am where the kid doesn't feel like he can say anything. These are things like, yeah, you might not play or your minutes will be reduced or you won't be on special teams. And these types of things that you can you can do. Uh, but I, if you apply common sense, there's got to be a balance there. And I think the good teams find it. The good coaches find it. So another branch to this conversation, and it touches on what you were just talking about. I happened to find myself at an athletic awards banquet for a local post-secondary institution. And I was sitting at a table full of coaches. The soccer coach was there, football coach, hockey coach. And we just got to talking along similar lines. And, you know, the way it used to be, and I'm an old guy, I get it. You know, I'd probably be Eddie Bush's age when Eddie Bush made those players walk back to the the rink that night. But whatever the case is, and I would have been that player that kind of accepted it. That's the era I grew up in. I'm like, Okay, I guess this is what you do because, yeah, you did kind of crap the bed during that game. And this is all about winning and losing. And that's what needs to be driven home. So you're walking the rest of the way. But we were we were talking, swapping stories about all these different things. And it, and I started to ask the question, if we don't demand excellence, if we don't emphasize how important it is to, obviously, you're not going to win 68 games every year. But to make sure that the compete level, as we like to talk about, is there, that effort is always there because winning truly at this level is about as important as anything else we do. It's all about wins and losses and advancing and developing you along the way. If we're not emphasizing that for players, where are the next great ones going to come from? Do we just have to wait for somebody to be born with the natural ability of a Connor McDavid and a, or a Connor Bedard and, and hope they show up on our team someday. Cause I think we're denying ourselves the opportunity of seeing some of those players who have it in the raw material, but need it refined through hard work. Yeah, that's fair. Although I, I would argue that probably those Connor McDavid's Connor Bedard's it's so ingrained in their DNA. You're not catching them cheating a whole lot and having to push them. Uh, you're right. There's some others, maybe a tier below where they, they need that. Uh, they need that push and that extra uh, bit of accountability. So, you know, it's, it, it's all about where you draw a line. I think what, what resonates with me and my personal experience growing up around hockey and in dressing rooms and with different coaches and is the concept of fairness. And you're probably familiar with this in the media too. I think as a media member covering hockey, Everyone's okay with you if you're fair. Most people are okay with you if you're fair. And that doesn't mean you're always positive. You can be critical. You can be positive about it. And the same thing applies, I think, in hockey teams, around hockey rooms, is if I dogged it in a game or didn't have my best game, I know it. I know I deserve what's coming. Uh, If the coach isn't fair, you know, 
someone dogged it. We're all skating. Like the, there's things that are going on where it starts to feel like, you know, their the coach isn't really paying attention. The, uh, the accountability isn't really in line with, with uh, what actually happened out there. Everyone, people know that people know that. So I don't think any player ever has any issue being held accountable for what they know they should have been held accountable for. It's, it's the fringe cases we're trying to to address. And I, I, I think that's where the trick is, but again, common sense goes a long way in this realm. Yeah. And I think fairness is a great way to put it. And I've talked to a lot of coaches over the years and a lot of former players who talk about communication, as long as that coach was telling me what was expected and then in a very fair way, delivering, acting in a way that, that mirrors what he told me was expected of me, then I'm fine with that. So if the communication is there and the fairness is there, maybe Dale Hunter is the most communicative, fair coach in the Ontario Hockey League. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. Well, well, I'll put you this way, Mike. We always talk about, you laugh about these old stories, but I know the, the famous one from former Montreal Canadiens first round pick, Terry Ryan, uh, when he was playing for Michelle Terrian, uh, in the AHL and Terry was apparently mad at him called him into his office one day had him sit in the office while he smoked a cigarette put it out and said now get the hell out of here that was his idea of communication so I think we've come a long way in our understanding of what effective communication is and I think most of these coaches these days take a lot of training in it so like you said as long as you're communicating properly and consistently uh, you don't run into nearly as many problems as some of these uh these old school guys did. We had uh, one of those old stories shared on this podcast uh, quite some time ago. But if you go back and look in the archives for the Mike and Steve Parsons episode, oh my goodness, it was you'll you'll laugh the entire time through. These guys were a couple of beauties, and Steve was was the the more uh, comedic of the two, just always looking for you know, some button to push or some bear to poke. And he played for Owen Sound. I forget who the coach was, but after a particularly bad loss in Kitchener, when Steve was on the bus back to Owen Sound and somebody said something or something happened that he found funny, laughed out loud on the bus. And after a bad loss, that was a no-no. He was ordered off the bus somewhere around Elmira. And you have a long way from Elmira back to Owen Sound. He had to get himself a taxi and get his way back to his billets place. So just let that sink in again. It's a story that we laugh at kind of now. I know, and for good reason, we've evolved from that. But I do hope, and I think there is, because we see teams that perform well consistently, and we see coaches who manage to exact the most out of players, it seems, on a regular basis still. I hope that means, you know, accountability still exists, and we will get more superstars. Because I really think that, you know, demanding hard work in a results-oriented business is more than fair in this case. Oh, absolutely. And and we didn't even touch, Mike, on some of the behind-the-scenes nuances that a lot of us don't know about, with which are agreements. You're recruiting these players amidst great competition from other leagues, and some of the, the higher-end players come with agreements on ice time or no-scratch no agreements and certain things that we don't even know about that are at play here. But like you said, the bottom line is accountability – is a key element and there's always ways to find it. And upfront communication is, is one of the the modern ways to do it more so than the the punishment, but uh, you got to have it. You, you won't succeed without it. But don't you have to earn those things like that? That chafes my chaps a little bit. 
oh, we got ice time agreements. You're going to be on PP1. Well, okay. And maybe if you've earned that based on your reputation coming into the league, but I hope there's another side of it that says, if you don't deliver, it's it's null and void. Like, come on. Oh, I I mean, I agree with you wholeheartedly, but we're, we're talking about negotiating leverage here too, where, you know, if you've got five offers on the table and this one wants to win you over, well, this might be the straw that tipped it. So yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I don't think any of those things really should exist because if you're putting in a good, honest effort and you are as good as your build coming in, then yeah, you should be able to live up to some of these expectations. So yeah, I'm with you. I just, I just think we're, we're dipping into a, a different realm there that is out of the team's control to some, some degree. That's a good point. You want to weigh in on any of this OHL podcast at rogers.com is the email address. Let's move on to, as we kind of stick in the theme of coaching and communication and how bad, I know we're going to the national hockey league here, but how bad a job the Vancouver Canucks organization did with the handling of Bruce Boudreaux. What an absolute disaster this is. You know, Mike, I think what bothers me the most about that handling, and it's been well told how how utterly disgusting that handling was. I mean, the man knows he's being fired well well before the team ever does it. And then even once they do it, they things that speak to their character, they didn't come out with any sort of apology or explanation for how they handled it. And hearing today that uh, someone from the Vancouver organization reached out to Elliot Friedman and kind of cast some blame on him for the the situation. So the lack of remorse, the lack of awareness that this isn't how you treat people, this isn't how you handle situations is kind of staggering. And you're talking about, I mean, I don't, I don't know exactly who made what decision in that organization, but you're talking about a guy like Jim Rutherford, who's, you know, a 73 year old man, long-term track record in the, in the business, you would think he would know better. And <laughs> Uh, it, it sometimes it just casts some doubt when we have this discussion about all these people running these organizations and in, in these key positions, you like to assume that they're, they're on top of everything, but then you see things like this, just think what, what on earth is going on? I want to give the fans in Vancouver a whole lot of credit because I managed to see the end of that game on the weekend and the send off that Bruce Boudreaux got from the fans in Vancouver with their Bruce, there it is chant was absolutely Terrific. So I think that was great of the fans to give the coach that kind of support, knowing that he was spending his final minutes behind that bench in Vancouver. Who knows if Bruce Boudreaux resurfaces, although the way he handled himself in all of this, I certainly think he makes his resume look very good as a professional. But it, it gets me thinking, and and you just uh, alluded to it when you you know look at a guy like Jim Rutherford, who's got a, a terrific reputation, quite frankly, as a, an architect of teams in, in the National Hockey League. And and I think he rides that reputation for good reason. And that's why he's doing the job that he does. But so many times we see fans and I get it. You're a fan. And I think we kind of touched on this last week on the podcast, but you, you buy your ticket and you want to go to the game and you want to shout whatever you want within the boundaries of good taste. Go ahead. You want to complain about the coach or the power play or this player or that player. Fine. But specifically when it comes to, to moves that, a fan wishes an organization would make. I maybe I'm just getting too old for this, but I just I'm not sure I I get it. I love the passion, and I I think I hope that teams look at it and say they're happy to have such a passionate fan base. But what do fans think they're really going to accomplish by continually chanting "ref you suck" or "fire the coach" or whatever it is they're chanting 
from from their stands. If, I think if fans really want to make an impact on what's happening within the organization, they should just stop buying tickets. It's I I just don't know anybody that that goes into an accountant's office. You know, let's go to KPMG and just say or Ernst and Young and say these are the worst bean counters I've ever seen in my life. Nobody does that, but yet everybody's quick to pounce on. Oh, this is the worst coach ever, or that general manager is an idiot. I don't know how we are so dismissive of the work that those people did to attain those jobs and the experience they have in them. Yeah. Well, like, I don't know if you're paying much attention to social media in the last few years, but people like to speak in extremes and, and superlatives and, and use every possible bit of hyperbole they can. So yeah, anyone that's holding a position, a public position of power is an idiot or a moron. And clearly these people are not, um, you talk about any of these people in getting these positions, they're not idiots and morons. They have lots going for them. They have, I, I think it comes from emotion uh, more than anything in a lot of these cases. Those tend not to be the people that have a lot of credibility. I, I, I don't think you get in a long discussion with someone that says, oh, this guy's an idiot, fire him. It, you want to have a little more nuanced discussion before you give anyone credit. But to answer your first question just about what do they hope they're going to accomplish, I, I, I think in those cases you gave, the ref, you suck, or the fire this guy, it seems to be that protest mindset where they're hoping – by sheer numbers, they can influence decisions, influence a ref to making the next call for their team, that kind of thing. Uh, whether or not it works or is is reasonable in the moment, it probably not. It's probably more that emotion coming through. But uh, the vote with your wallet thing is all, always very valid. I, I think the trouble I have with that piece just is these are people that are passionate about the sport. The sport that the only thing they have locally is, is the game they're attending. And if they give up their passion... Probably their preferred option is to have that team get things together a little better so they can still enjoy it rather than just say, I'm not going to have that in my life anymore. So especially if you get certain markets, uh, you know, where they're, they're having no issue selling tickets. So, you know, you, you walking out is probably not going to influence any decisions any more than you yelling, you know, fire this guy or fire that guy. So uh, yeah, it, 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 a lot of it's just based on emotion, Mike, but I, I would assume that protest mentality is where you're getting some of that, that outbreak. The, the the impression I'm getting lately is that people think they could do the job better. I don't know if it's because of the rise in fantasy sports or not, but it's like saying, you know, I've flown on a lot of airplanes. I could pilot this thing. Like, we got to stop with this nonsense, don't we? Or am I getting carried away now? No, no. I, well, I I mean, maybe you probably hear more around the boards. I don't hear a whole lot of, I could do this job better. Right? I, I hear a lot of, I, I think a lot of people are okay at recognizing when something's not going well or not, not working properly. So they're, they can criticize when something doesn't look the way it should, but I don't know that a lot of people would say, I I've diagnosed this. I can do better. Put me in charge. There are some that do say that for sure. <laughs> and, and tend to ignore those. So, um, but yeah, I think uh, pilot example is probably a bad one, but if you were on an airplane, it was wobbling and shaking and bounced 10 feet every time it landed, you'd say, Oh, you know, might not be the best pilot we've got up there. You, so you could recognize he wasn't doing it as well as it can be done, but you're not necessarily saying put me up there. Yeah. You know, it's funny that we had decided that we were going to talk about this. And then just last night, I watched the Harold Ballard documentary on CBC. And it just comes back to what I said initially, because in all honesty, and I learned stuff, I'm, I'm a lifelong Leafs fan. I, I learned stuff about, pal hal as we used to call them that i didn't know prior but in all honesty when i'm watching this and and everybody knows it was all about the money for harold ballard truly if those fans had 
rebelled against his antics and his, frankly, abuse of the organization. He strictly used the Toronto Maple Leafs and Maple Leaf Gardens as an ATM before ATMs even existed. But like, if fans had actually spoken with their wallets, you you can guarantee dang tea. Things would have been different because Ballard would not have been making money and he would have been forced to do things differently so that he could make money. The problem for Leafs fans, like true dyed-in-the-wool Leafs fans, is there are just so many of them. And it's the old Barnum and Bailey thing, right? There's a sucker born in every minute, or in that case, 17,000 suckers born. And if those 17,000 are out, they'll find 17,000 more with that fan base. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, Ballard comical era but uh, i think when you when you bring it down to the junior hockey level too i think i think a legitimate concern for some of these communities where it's the only game in town and they're passionate about it is if they vote with their wallets and stop going that the team might go it, it's a legitimate concern the team you might not get the regime change you're looking for you might lose the team altogether and so and that's not what anyone wants so i think there's there's a lot of a nuance to this a lot of emotion and passion but uh yeah, we can always point out the extremely bad cases like Harold Ballard and some of these others, but uh, like everything else, a healthy dose of uh, of common sense and maybe just taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture because none of these things are ever black and white. Like we just were talking about, none of these people are idiots. They might do some things wrong. Uh, they might have blind spots and things that they're not great at, but let's let's dial back the emotional rhetoric a bit so we can actually get somewhere in the conversation. Can we do that in every conversation moving forward? I think we could use it in politics and in life in general these days. (laughs) Oh, fair point. Yeah, I was just saying the other day not to delve into politics, but I'm not sure why anyone really wants to run for office these days with the abuse you take. So absolutely true why do you want to be a hockey coach why do you want to be a gm take your pick right because we are more accessible i shouldn't i'm not in that category but more accessible in that role than you've ever been in the past that's for sure okay let's focus on some stuff going on on the ice and i promise like i said we're going to get to that inbox in just a moment but uh the trade deadline now a couple of weeks in the rear view mirror we've seen some early returns from assets acquired anybody standing out to you dansky yeah, uh, there, there's obviously a few that are that are really helping their teams. I mean, I don't want to steal any of your thunder, but obviously, like Brett Harris and the work he's doing in Windsor has been pretty impressive. I, but I think what a uh, couple that have caught my eye for sure are I, I think the contingent that Sarnia added has really answered a few questions in my mind. I, I think I I mentioned earlier I was just I wasn't sure they were going to keep the puck out of the net, and I think by and large what we've seen since the trade deadline is they're doing a much better job of keeping the puck out of the net. Uh, Benjamin Godra looks like, like himself uh, having Ethan Del Mastro 25 to 30 minutes on the back end. And just the overall accountability uh, brought into that organization now with some of these, these 200 foot players. Uh, so uh, Sarnia is jumping out to me in, in that category as well, really taking off since the deadline. Ethan Del Mastro was so good in my opinion on Saturday when I saw him, I didn't even really notice Ethan Ritchie. And I can't remember the last time I watched a Sarnia Sting game without noticing Ritchie more, but Del Mastro was terrific. You're right when you mention Brett Harrison, uh, obviously just coming off the career-high five-point night. But what I love even more about the way the dividends are paying off in Windsor is I'm, I'm a sucker for a super line and when you look at Wright, Maggio, and Harrison as a trio, I mean, 
my goodness, have they been fun. I'm sure because we all know scoring goes in slumps. There will be little dips here and there. But gosh, if you if you need something, just th throw those three guys out there. Or heaven forbid you take a penalty against the Windsor Spitfires right now. So that's just been fun to watch. And let's just I, I know he wasn't part of the acquisitions, but can we just throw a nod to Matt Maggio? who's oh. tied for the league lead in goals as we have this conversation this week. And did any sixth rounder, I'm pretty sure fifth or sixth to the Islanders. Right. And like, did anybody have Maggio's name at the top of the league lead for goals? I know we've still got considerable time to go, but he's in a really good place. Now he's got some really good line mates at this point in the season. So let's give a nod to, to Maggio and what's going on there. And the other player I'll just mention, because I think it gets overlooked because it wasn't as much a trade as just the return, but Brant Clark has been, yeah. top shelf for the for the Barry Colts since coming back to this league. Yeah, I, we had a few questions, right, about that. Like, uh, how much of a difference would he make? I think we knew it would be pretty magnificent. People, I think when you're thinking about these things, you think, well, yeah, sure, Brant Clark's a really good player. You plug him in, uh, you're getting all the benefits of him. But it's not just that. It's everyone slots down one spot in that lineup to where they belong, right? You have, you have better matchups. It, it has profound impacts on the entire lineup. So, so that was one. And the, the other question I asked was how much of a difference was the loss of Pavel Minchikov going to make in Saginaw? And this isn't to demean that, them in any way. They've had a great year, but I think they're on a pretty uh, terrible run right now, which is to be expected when you move a player of that ilk out. But I, I think it's answering some questions about how important he was to that group. I will also just say, it, because it caught my attention this week, and it goes without saying that no lead is safe in the Ontario Hockey League, but that Barry... Windsor game on Saturday night where Windsor scores four straight goals to take a seven, four lead. And then the Colts come back with three and ultimately Windsor wins it eight to seven. But if you count the Thursday games, which we always do in, in the past weekends worth of league action, the Windsor Spitfires allowed 19 goals against allowed 19 goals against, but they won two of the games still. And I guess I kind of get it. Like that's how they're going to win games. But I don't know if you want to count on scoring eight in the playoffs when that rolls around, but 19 <laughs> goals against in three games for the Windsor Spitfires. I'm sure that's not making the D coach all that happy. No. And, and, you know, on this, because they'll have to tighten up to win the playoffs. And I just, that, that game they did drop, but I, I, I think we'd be remiss not to mention the post trade deadline performances on the team that sold. And I look at a team like, like Oshawa who handed those wins or spitfires a loss there. They've been, uh, you know, you point to the impact coaching can make and those, I mean, you've got a young team now, got a lot of the younger players now starting to get a lot more ice, uh, and the special teams, all three of their special teams have been fantastic. I mean, talk about the number one power play in the league for a team that doesn't have a lot of potent offense. Uh, penalty kill running at 95, almost 95% since Christmas. And the third special team I'll give a nod to is their social media team who are, are all over when they win a game. They're all over the social media sphere with with great little uh, memes. And I'll, so Oshawa Generals, I mean, what a what a bright spot they've been lately with with those things. They, since last season, caught my attention on social media. And on that point of teams that sold off but are, you know, playing really well, don't look now, but the Hamilton Bulldogs have won four of their past five games. And two of those four wins, Ottawa, North Bay, in Ottawa and North Bay. Not easy. So another young hockey club and playing some pretty good hockey right now. All right, let's get to the email inbox. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, 
Uh, I am reading off my phone. I feel so rude doing this because I'm talking to Dan and you're listening and I appreciate it, but that's what I'm going to do. If you're not watching on YouTube, hey, by the way, we have a YouTube channel. It's called the OHL Podcast. So go ahead and find it. And you'll find some content just like this and more. Uh, email anytime, ohlpodcast at rogers.com. This comes from our friend Joe, who has emailed before from Westerly, Rhode Island. So Joe, thanks for the email. It goes back then to the conversation we were having uh, just around the Christmas break about slew footing and how the league has implemented the crackdown, but we weren't entirely sure that they were sort of getting it right all the time, almost erring a little too much on the side of caution. So Joe writes that he really enjoyed that part of the discussion and then can't help but think of the recent boatload of slew footing calls as an unfortunate result of the slippery slope the OHL started to go down about 12 years ago with the crackdown on fighting. Now, I'm not saying that the fighting crackdown was necessarily a bad thing. What I am saying is that it was the beginning of a trend focused on player safety that has subsequently resulted in a reduction in the hard-nosed physical hockey that personified the O once upon a time. This seems to me the crux of the underlying concern you were voicing regarding the unintended consequences of excessive slew foot penalty calls. By penalizing accidental trips so harshly, I believe the OHL is overreacting to player safety concerns in a manner similar to the way it overreacted to calls to crack down on fighting in the aftermath of the Jonathan Roy brawl in the queue back in 2008. To me, the slew foot crackdown is the byproduct of a natural progression in the focus on player safety, one that, over time, has arguably had a negative impact on the entertainment value of the CHL as a whole. Curiously enough, you don't see nearly as many slew foot calls in the queue. It makes you wonder what's happening in the O to prompt such an overreaction. From Joe in Westerly, Rhode Island. Appreciate the email to OHLpodcast at rogers.com. Thoughts, Dansky? Yeah, well, actually, Joe, I agree wholeheartedly with you. I think that's a great email. Thanks for sending it. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think the OHL has tried to achieve this brand as being top-notch in player safety, and that's where some of these things are coming from. But clearly the physicality and thus some of the entertainment value has dropped off in this league. And I would actually argue a little bit further when you get some of these overreach reactions to the slew footing calls which are not slew foots and this type of thing i worry about long term creating a dynamic where the players are less aware about their own safety on the ice and are you going to get a few extra more catastrophic injuries because they're not expecting some of these things when they happen i'm not saying it's a good thing to have these things happen in your league obviously crack down when there is a slew foot or anything dangerous i just believe you can achieve player safety by going after the things that are a problem for player safety without doing these things like this uh, overreach on slew footing, which are drastically reducing any kind of physicality. Some players are, are afraid to go anywhere near another player because they don't know how it's going to be interpreted by the league or the officials. So I'm with you, Joe. I don't know what you think, Mike. Well, I'm going to be the old guy that I am again and almost tie it back to our first conversation about accountability and there's nothing wrong with a good old-fashioned bag skate. I'm not a Neanderthal, I promise, but I do think there needs to be a little bit of a course correction on, look, I'm all for safety, but I think we've gone a little bit too far to the point that the game, one of the great things about the game is its physicality. And I had a former player, granted he would have been playing back, when was he playing? In the 80s in the O? So different era for sure. But he, I saw him at the game on Tuesday night this past week, 
And he wondered if anybody was allowed to even body check anymore because it's it's kind of a dying art to the point you just made and Joel made too. If you're afraid to even go near another player and engage them physically for fear of a penalty or a, a two-game suspension, whatever it may be. Anyway, I think we've gotten um, too... I don't want to use the word soft, but we're not as physical as we need to be. It's a It's a sport that is meant to be a physical sport. If the other player has the puck, get it away from him in any legal means possible. Throw a body check, do this or the other thing. And, you know, we talked about the Jackson Edward hit. I feel bad for Adrian Misseljevic because he's not doing well right now, but that was a whale of a body check. Yeah. And, and absolutely. And if you're Jackson Edward, who's throwing the type, making the type of play his NHL team is going to expect him to make when he gets there, you need him to be able to, to do that in a game and, and practice it and get and it just feels unfair to some of these players if if they're at the mercy of the officials in the league and any kind of wonky interpretation of what that was uh, and having them guessing, is this a 10-game suspension? Is it no penalty? Um, so we got to be careful about how we how we dole out punishment on these things. I think the league has gone a step too far. All right. Our uh, buddy Elam from the Sioux is back in the inbox this week too. Again, emails anytime, ohlpodcast at rogers.com. We love to hear from you. Uh, this one is is much lighter, and I've had a chance to think about it a little bit, Dan, but we'll see how you react. Uh, if you could travel back in time to see one OHL team of the past play in one game that you could personally view in the arena, what team would it be and from what year? Wow. Yeah. That's, you that's know a, go ahead, Mike. I'll well, let you. <laughs> yeah. I, see, and I was going through a lot of this, like, you know, do you want to watch? Because arguably that 2005 Knights team is the best team the, the CHL has ever seen. And then I thought back to my youth and I just think I was, it was wasted on me. It came just a little too soon, that first Memorial Cup for the Kitchener Rangers. But I'd love to see Bellows and Larmer and St- like all those guys, McKinnis all on the ice together. So I thought of them too. But then just as I was reading this from Elam, and, and again, it says personally view in the arena. They were in the O at the time. Can I go back and watch the 1981 Cornwall Royals <laughs> with Howard Chuck and Gilmore and those guys? Like maybe that would be where I want to go back to. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, I, I think I might land on that just because I've got this fondness. Uh, and nostalgia for the Royals, bring back the Royals to this league. I would love to see it. And that was, you know, as much as the 05 Knights were a super team, boy, oh boy, that uh, Cornwall team in 81 was a buzzsaw. So I think I might just go with that to go a little bit away from Kitchener and the Midwest division. Yeah, that's a really tough question to answer, Elam, because when you look at pretty much every OHL team has has a team or two in its past where they were just dynamite. They were just unbelievable. And you'd want to go back and, and see every minute of that. Um, so it's really hard to narrow it down to one. Being a Kitchener boy, obviously, Mike, that's what jumped to mind. Like you had Scott Stevens, Paul Coffey, Brian Bellows, and that that era, the the lesser known, like the Je- the Jeff Larmers, and uh, they had an awful lot of uh, talent in that era. And I think it was wasted on me being just a little kid at that point. But uh, so it's 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 tough to pin down to one. I I mean, I would love to go back and watch Brian Fogarty's days in in Niagara Falls in that barn just probably as as good a a talent as has ever graced the blue line in the ohl and again kind of wasted on me at the age i was and and with how things played out in his career but uh 
So if you're going to ask me to pinpoint one, I might I might take a journey down to the falls and watch watch a game or two of of that gentleman. That's that's a great selection. You're right because that guy almost rewrote the position really in an era a little bit after uh, Bobby Orr for sure. So uh, Elam, by the way, signs off with a PS uh, as a Hounds fan. He would have loved to have been there in '93 when the Hounds won the Memorial Cup on home ice. And it's funny how much that's coming up on the podcast recently because we had guests on uh, just this past week. Jason Denemy's podcast is up right now. If you missed it, uh, played for the 92, 91 and 92 Sioux team, missed the Memorial Cup in 93. And Mark Mateer, who was on a couple of weeks back and was there for all three of them, like what a little era in Sault Ste. Marie slash OHL hockey. Three straight OHL championships. The one Memorial Cup, they missed by 14 seconds when the winning goal was scored against them. I mean, could have gone to overtime. They might have lost, but it was 14 seconds to go in regulation when they were beaten in the final. And then the next year, they come back and and they win it on home ice. So that, that'd be pretty cool for sure. Yeah, the, well, the Sioux, fans of the Sioux have been spoiled by probably a few more golden eras than a lot of cities. They just so much talent has come through there and so many dynamic teams that had, you know, could always skate, um, but also had that physicality and that potent offense. Just a lot of, a lot of wonderful teams came through the the Sioux. All right. Before we wrap it up for another week, uh, we always like to do our prospects of the week. One from each of us. I'm actually cheating. I'm giving you three, but it's just two honorable mentions. Uh, But Dan, I'll start with you prospect of the week. All right. Hopefully I didn't steal any of yours, Mike. I'm I'm actually going to lean towards, I had two in mind. I'm going to go with the guy whose team performance showed it the most since the trade deadline. We've got the Mississauga Steelheads on a bit of a heater here, despite moving out all those bodies and, and rebuilding. And part of that is my prospect of the week, who is Angus McDonnell. And I, I just love the spark plug type players that don't really have an off button. And, and, you know, I watched on, on the weekend past when the, uh, Montreal Canadiens called up Raphael Harvey Pinard from from Laval to play in that game against the Leafs, and that's the type of guy I see in Angus McDonnell. Just go, go, go. Does the right things all the time. Brings his team into the fight. Has some skill. Uh, always has uh, boundless energy, and uh, I I think that heater of a week that Mississauga had is is largely in part to uh, to Mister McDonnell. So he's my guy. I know he's not draft eligible because he's just the rookie, but Porter Martone went to Mississauga in those deals too, right? There's So that's a nice couple of pieces. I'm a big Martone guy. Uh, so anyway, but great pick with McDonnell for sure. I'm going to stay in the Western Conference and go with a guy I identified as – I look, I'm just being completely selfish here because I mentioned this guy at the beginning of the season saying just keep your eye on him. He's not, you know, tearing up the league and scoring like – you know, I thought maybe just under the radar, but anyway, Colson Petrie with the Flynn Firebirds, eight points, including five goals in his past five games is uh, good enough for me. So I'm going to give a nod to Petrie as my prospect of the week this week on a Flint team that, listen, it's got some tough competition in the Western Conference and hasn't really had a lot to uh, to bolster its fortune. So we'll see what it's like down the stretch. The two honorable mentions come strictly one from a shift and then, well, actually, no from two shifts that I happen to see on Sunday. So both London nights first will be uh, Easton Cowan, whose four check directly contributed to London's first goal in that game against Kitchener. And it was just, it's just one of those little things you love to see. And, and I saw it and I, I wanted to just recognize him for it. And then 
Denver Barky. I, even as I'm thinking back on it, Dan, I'm still, oh, I, I feel this like little shiver go through me because first of all, full credit goes to Barky on this particular play for his back check. Cause here's a forward coming back and I forget the Ranger forward. He was trying to tie up, but anyway, they get to the goal. Uh, Brochu able to make the save because the Ranger player, the Ranger forward didn't get a great shot away. Uh, Barky ends up falling down. Brochu makes the save. Puck is still free. And Danny Jokin from about the top of the faceoff circle steps into one, like steps into one, except the shot went wide. And that's where Denver Barky had fallen. And again, as I'm seeing this in my mind's eye, I thought for sure he took it full in the face. And thankfully he was able to duck and it got him in the top of the helmet. And he was just fine. But honest to goodness, I I'm still feeling it, just recounting it. What could have been it? Oh my goodness gracious. But credit on the back check kid and way to get your head down at the right time. Cause that could have been fugly, but it wasn't. So there, my honorable mentions go to Cowan and Barky just for those two plays. Yeah. Great, great choices, Mike. And I think there's a common thread between all four guys we mentioned your three and my one and there's fan favorite types. Right. And we talked just to come full circle, what we talked on the start of the podcast about accountability is you don't need accountability with those four. They bring it themselves. Great point. Great point. They're hardworking guys out there. Okay. Uh, just as I tee up who's coming up on Friday, this one, this one's going to be fun. He, uh, he had a professional hockey playing dad and he credits a former coach in the Ontario Hockey League who's now doing pretty good things in the National Hockey League by the name of Pete DeBoer with helping him see the light because he was playing for Pete in Plymouth. And Pete famously said to him, you know what? You strike me as the kind of guy that wants to have fun. We're not here to have fun. That was the championship team uh, that Pete took to the final against Barry. And so this kid was traded away from Plymouth and Pete said, I'm going to send you to a place where you can have more fun, which at the time was Kitchener, which I find really ironic because Pete later came and made Kitchener a less fun place to be, at least for that kind of fun, if you know what I mean. Anyway, uh, the real great story that's behind all of this is the player did like to have fun uh, more than he should have. And things could have gone in a completely different direction, but he has righted himself and it's a pretty darn inspirational story. So that will be our guest on Friday. That, that's I know that's not that's on the vague side, but whatever. I have a guess, but uh, I'm, I can't wait to tune in. So. <laughs> That's the whole idea. All right. He's Dan Mahar on Twitter at Dan Mahar. I'm Mike Farwell on Twitter at Farwell underscore OHL. Uh, send us an email anytime. OHL podcast at Rogers.com. Your next episode with the guest who Pete DeBoer said, I'm going to send you to Kitchener. We can have more fun. That's coming up on Friday. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.